This is Monday Morning QB, January 30th, 2023. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, the emerging debate over allowing police to deploy robots armed with deadly weapons. Plus, a look at the past and present of local inequality and how we can fight to fix it. And we launch a series featuring the voices of Namibian women. All that and more. Stay with us. With the release of body cam and surveillance camera video Friday night, the nation witnessed the savage beating by Memphis cops of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man and father, on January 7th. Tyree died on January 10th from injuries inflicted by the cops. The Memphis Police Department initially claimed that Tyree had been stopped on suspicion of reckless driving, but as Memphis Police Chief Sarah Lynn Davis told CNN on Friday, investigators have not been able to back up that pretext. Ahead of the video release Friday, Davis held a press conference to prepare the public. Aside from being your chief of police, I am a citizen of this community we share. I am a mother. I am a caring human being who wants the best for all of us. This is not just a professional failing. This is a failing of basic humanity toward another individual. This incident was heinous, reckless, and inhumane. And in the vein of transparency, when the video is released in the coming days, you will see this for yourselves. I expect you to feel what the Nichols family feels. I expect you to feel outrage in the disregard of basic human rights as our police officers have taken an oath to do the opposite of what transpired on the video. Less than two weeks after the beating, five Memphis cops were dismissed for excessive use of force, failure to intervene, and failure to render aid. Last Thursday, all five were charged with second-degree murder and aggravated kidnapping, among other charges. Then on Saturday, Memphis PD announced that they permanently disbanded the so-called Scorpion Unit that all five cops were assigned to. Speaking to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! on Friday, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump said that the speed with which this case is moving should become the standard in all cases of police violence. What we have seen that transpire with these charges being levied so quickly should now be the blueprint of what happens when you see police officers commit crimes on video against citizens. And we saw the Memphis Police Department, the district attorney, terminate these five black officers and charge them with less than 20 days. And so when we think about all these other cases where this Terrence Crutcher, uh, Philando Castile, I mean, so many of them, both of them gene, they can't have this excuse now and say, we need six months, we need a year, when you have evidence on video of the crime, because it should be equal justice that we have swift justice, not just when it's five black officers, when it's any police officer that engage in excessive use of force against citizens, unarmed citizens. Tyree's stepfather, Rodney Wells, reflected on the charges levied against the Memphis cops involved in killing Tyree and called for protest 
during a press conference held last week. I just wanted to say that as Mr. Crump just stated, I did push for murder one from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That was my main goal. But as the charges were told to us and they explained to us what the difference between murder one and murder two was, we're very satisfied with the charges. Um, more importantly, we want peace. We do not want any type of uproar. We do not want any type of disturbance. We want peaceful protests. That's what the family wants. Uh, that's what the community wants. Uh, they're all kind of, I got a text today from one of my supervisors about an alert uh, telling her don't be in the crowds tonight. We shouldn't have that. We need to do this peacefully. Mm -hmm. The family is very satisfied with the process, uh, with the police chief, the DA. Uh, they acted very, very quickly in this case. We are very, very pleased with that. Yes. Uh, other cases drag on, but this is a special case. We had a special son. Yeah. That prompted the uh, quickness of this results. So. As of the Tyree Nichols family, please, please protest, but protest safely. Thank you. In closing, we hear from Tyree's mom, Rovon Wells, who told Democracy Now! how she wants us all to remember the son she lost. I want you to remember Tyree. Tyree was, he was different. Tyree didn't follow everyone. He was his own leader. Uh -huh. um, he had a beautiful soul and he touched everyone. The boy smiled all the time. He loved his mother's cooking. He loved his son. That's why he came to Memphis in the first place, to be with his mom, build a better life, for him and his son. But Memphis took my son away from me. Oh, I have nothing. Tyree had a tattoo of you on his arm? He had my name on a tattoo of my name on his arm. That's Rovon Wells, the mother of Tyree Nichols, the 29 year old black man who was killed by Memphis cops earlier this month. A funeral for Tyree will be held the morning of this Wednesday, February 1st, at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church in Memphis. The five cops who killed Tyree have been released from jail on bond, awaiting an arraignment hearing February 17th. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Last month, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted against a measure first approved in November that would have allowed police to deploy robots with lethal force in extreme situations. 
The reversal came only after the initial plan sparked widespread public outcry. As Supervisor Dean Preston said in a statement following the change in course, quote, The people of San Francisco have spoken loud and clear. There is no place for killer police robots in our city. We should be working on ways to decrease the use of force by local law enforcement, not giving them new tools to kill people, end quote. Sue Goodwin has more. Even while the San Francisco Board of Supervisors did vote unanimously to bar police from using remote-controlled robots for deadly force, a more accurate way to describe it is they put the plan on pause. They sent the issue back to committee for discussion and may vote to allow armed police robots in limited cases in the future. Among those arguing against any such use ever is the American Civil Liberties Union. In a recent post to their website titled, Arming Robots is Too Dangerous, Jay Stanley explains why. He is Senior Policy Analyst with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, and one of the arguments he makes is that the very nature of the technology makes it inevitable that it will be overused. I think what we've seen across many different areas of many different technologies is when things become easier to do because of new technology, they always end up getting overdone. And we often see that with surveillance. It used to be expensive to follow somebody around and see where they go during their days. It used to be expensive to listen to somebody's communications. And now the NSA can have a computer listen to somebody's communications and search for keywords and transcribe their speech. And so, lo and behold, the NSA started doing mass surveillance and, you know, using that kind of surveillance on entire populations. And we see mass surveillance being done with, um, you know, telephone, cell phone tracking, with license plate scanners and so forth. And I think that the same thing will apply to the use of force. If force can be used in a risk-free manner and um, without... Um, any costs, and by just sending out a robot, given what we see in American policing today, it, it just seems very obvious that we're going to see force used even more often when it's not justified. But it's not just overuse that Jay Stanley warns about. As he states in the post, the more the technology is used, the greater the chance it will be, in his words, used sloppily thereby increasing the risk of hitting unintended targets. You know, I think that when you're using force remotely, so here we're talking about a remotely controlled robot using force, not an autonomous robot, which is a whole other conversation and is, you know, I think, widely seen as beyond the pale, at least in a domestic environment. But if you have an officer who is using force remotely, that officer doesn't have a live 360-degree multi-sensory sense of what's going on, what the situation is, and an intuition about what's happening around them in the way that we human beings are evolved to do. And so I think that it's much more likely that the perception of the situation is um, going to be confused or flawed um, and that force will be used inappropriately or on the wrong targets. Situations are confusing enough often when a human being is there, but instead of fully perceiving what's going on, to be able to see and hear only through 
you know, the soda straw of a video stream just greatly increases the chances, it seems obvious to me, that force will be used badly and, and you know, potentially on the wrong targets. There's also, of course, the possibility that um, signals could be degraded or lost between the remote robot and the officer so that the video isn't good or um, commands that the officer is sending are not received properly or are received late after a delay. And, of course, you know, any kind of remote controls, as everybody knows today, like every other technology, is susceptible to hacking. So it's not hard to imagine some pretty nightmarish scenarios if, if anybody could hack a police robot that's capable of using force. To be clear, the original policy passed by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors called for armed robots in extreme situations, or as stated, quote, when risk of loss of life to members of the public or officers is imminent and officers cannot subdue the threat after using alternative force options or de-escalation tactics, close quote. But, as Jay Stanley writes in his post, such movie plot scenarios are just the tiny tip of a large pyramid of instances in which police use force, many of which are totally unjustified and take place in a legal context that protects almost all officers from accountability. I think anybody can come up with hypothetical scenarios in which a robot or any tool that you can imagine will save the day, but that should never be the end of the analysis. The question is not whether you can imagine a situation. The question is how likely is that situation to come up and what are the other downsides of that technology being used in that way? How likely are they to be abused? How often are they likely to be abused as as opposed to used in ways that people find acceptable? And so forth. In addition to the possibility of actual physical harm being unjustly delivered, as Jay Stanley points out, there are other civil liberties that come up in the use of armed robots to police communities. As he writes in his post, the very fact that people find it frightening matters, and if used routinely, it can chill dissent and bring a kind of dehumanizing quality to the way communities are policed? Well, I think that when it comes to arming robots, then, you know, I think that physical harm is by far the biggest danger, but they can also be used for intimidation. Police departments around the country often talk about what's called a show of force, and we see this in our daily lives here in Washington, D.C. You see police who are sort of there to make a show. The theory is to, you know, deter anybody from trying anything. But the reason that works is because the police look frightening, and that's not something that people want in their daily lives and in their neighborhoods. And you know, if it even does work, I say, I say, if it work, if it works. And so I think that there's a real quality of life issues there. Nobody wants some really spooky robot walking down their street every day as part of their daily life, and that's likely to happen, especially in marginalized communities, which always get over-policed and, and feel the brunt of various surveillance and other police technologies first and, and most. And so beyond the actual risk of physical force, there's a real quality of life issue there and, and a danger that people will just be intimidated. Going forward, Jay Stanley says, 
it's not yet clear how many other police departments will attempt to put armed robots into use on the ground. But, he warns, communities need to be prepared for any number of possibilities that may not involve the use of armed robots, and that includes the use of aerial drones. You know, we don't know how police robots will evolve. Maybe they'll remain a niche thing that will never really take off and they'll just prove not to be practical in a lot of different ways. But maybe police departments will embrace them and find insist that they're useful for various things and, and find them something that they want to invest a lot of money in and, and, and they you know do become part of daily life in in the ways we've talked about. In terms of drones, you know, I think that drones are probably more likely, much more likely than sort of ground, wheeled or legged robots to become common. Uh, we've already seen a large number of police departments around the country purchase them. Um, and, you know, some of the uses are legitimate for finding somebody who's lost in the wilderness or what have you. But what we don't want to see is drones that uh, are used outside of very specific uses, such as um, where the police have reason to believe that there's a crime going on or that they need to take a photograph of a crime scene or what have you. We don't want to see drones on patrol for many of the same reasons that I was just talking about with robot dogs or other ground robots. And, and in, additional, in addition to ground robots, ground robots can be a surveillance device. They can carry cameras and microphones and other sensors, but they're a pretty inefficient way probably to, to, to put sensors places. But a drone can easily be um, used for sort of mass suspicionless surveillance. A swarm of drones could spread out over a city. They could autonomously recharge themselves. We think there would be serious constitutional issues with that, and we fought over um, aerial surveillance in, in court and, and succeeded in the fighting a, uh, not a drone, but a manned or piloted aircraft that was flying over Baltimore and, and videotaping like a 30-square-mile area. And we argued that that was constitutionally problematic, and, and we won in court. And so we would be optimistic that we could win against mass surveillance but there's, there's a lot of room for a lot of abusive and intimidating and degrading uses of drones um, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, by police, and, and potentially by others as well, um, by, by companies. Given the potential for such a wide range of problems that can arise as police forces adopt robotic technology, the ACLU suggests that communities should take preemptive action rather than wait and see what happens. To that end, they offer a number of guiding principles that communities and policymakers should follow when debating police robots and enacting laws to govern their use. But, you know, it may just be a gimmicky, you know, somebody says, you know, toys for boys, but it may evolve in ways that do prove to be practical and we'll, we'll see and we'll, and we'll see what exact problems emerge, but I think that any community where the police department is agitating or asking for this technology, you know, needs to think carefully about the different restrictions that they should put on place, such as making sure that it can never be armed or, or use force in any way, that it's not in their private property without a warrant, that it not be used without community, community permission, and that the department be very transparent about how it's being used. Jay Stanley is Senior Policy Analyst with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
Washington, D.C. is no stranger to inequality. It is one of the most gentrified cities in the United States and features extreme gaps in income and wealth by race. Only about 1,500 D.C. households control nearly half the total wealth in the district, according to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. 87% of the district's wealth is held by white families, despite making up less than 46% of the D.C. population. These kinds of disparities aren't unique to D.C., but are exacerbated here due to decades of political disenfranchisement, says Erica Williams, executive director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. Luckily, local government does have a potent tool to redress these inequalities, namely taxes, which can be used to redistribute wealth and income. As Williams tells Monday Morning QB, D.C. has an opportunity this year to reshape the local tax code. Williams, in addition to her role at the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, is serving on the D.C. Tax Revision Commission, a body that is created every 10 years to review and recommend changes to the local tax code. The commission's recommendations are due in the fall, a fast pace to make some potentially big decisions. To better understand why the commission is important and how it relates to local racial inequality, Erica Williams talks about the local history of racial injustice and disenfranchisement. Across the board, there are these huge disparities between the well-being, um, the health, the wealth, the income of Black and white residents. And that is very much rooted in, you know, a long history of uh, racialized discrimination, right? We, um, and I know sometimes folks don't like to think all the way back, but, you know, the extreme and racialized concentration of wealth in the U.S. and in D.C. has its roots in you know, the exploitation of uh, African labor and through enslavement and all of the steps taken thereafter to really cement white economic and political dominance. Um, you know, in the district, we had the extra effort to disenfranchise uh, and, and remove from political life Black voters through uh, removing the right to elected representation in Congress and um, elected representation here locally for the district for a really long time. I think there's just a long history there that has sort of cemented in big barriers to employment, income, and wealth for, for Black residents. And it's we see it every day. I, there's a really interesting study that we cite in our blog on extreme wealth in the district that looks at the white to black racial wealth gap and sets it at current day at six to one and says that even if at the point of emancipation to current day, we had had equal access to wealth building opportunities, that the white to black per capita wealth ratio would still be three to one. So that original harm imposed via enslavement, and that was actually then instead reinforced and exacerbated over centuries through policies and practices, right? Like Jim Crow segregation, black codes here in the district limiting 
what kind of employment Black people could have, tax limits and preferences across the South, many other policies and practices like redlining and and practices of real estate agents to keep neighborhoods segregated. All of those things built up to the current kind of outcomes we see today. But we wouldn't be able to resolve the wealth gap we see today without actually addressing that kind of original harm. And I think that's a really interesting finding. Fast forwarding to the current day, I want to talk about how uh, government taxing and spending policies can potentially reduce inequalities, wealth and racial. You serve on the D.C. Tax Revision Commission, which, in my understanding, is a group that forms every 10 years to recommend improvements to the district's tax system. Uh, members of this new uh, newest iteration of the commission include representatives from the Washington Nationals, D.C. Chamber of Commerce, Howard University, and other groups, and recommendations from the group are due this fall. Talk about what you expect to be in the recommendations from this fairly eclectic group of leaders, and what are your particular goals on the commission? Yeah, so I will say I don't expect anything thus far. (laughs) I think it remains to be seen. Right now, we um, are in a process of hearing from experts and learning about ways we might improve different parts of our tax code. But let me step back and just say that the charge of this tax commission, this this year's tax revision commission, is a little bit different than it has been in past years. So it has a lot of the same objectives as it has in past years, things like resilience of our revenue base, right? Can we, How do we uh, make sure we have revenue that is stable, efficient, equitable? Um, we need to be thinking about our tax base that supports communities and businesses, you know, a tax code that is efficient and effective and, you know, that we're streamlining where we can and so forth. So those are some of the things that have always been there. But this time around, we were also charged with thinking about uh, the racial equity impacts of our tax system. And so that I would say is a new piece of uh of our work and something that I am very much interested in um, seeing us uh, work into all of our tax policy proposals, not to come up with like one or two things that we think might improve racial equity, but to think about how do we work across the different parts of our tax code to build a system that is racially equitable, I think both in its design uh, and who it's privileging and who it's disadvantaging, and also in the ability for us to continue to make investments in communities that have been neglected in the district, you know, and to, to take aim at some of these inequities that I just spoke to, right? So that is my, per, you know, I think racial equity is a charge that is part of the Tax Revision Commission's job now, but that is my particular interest in terms of what we come up with, what we propose to the mayor and to the council in terms of tax policy changes. Very quickly, how can D.C. residents participate in this process? Because it is a little bit fast moving and recommendations are due in the fall, and I'd imagine that commissioners do want input from residents. Yeah, thanks for asking that. 
everybody should go to the Tax Revision Commission website, and we're working on, or I shouldn't say we, the staff of the commission are working on a new website because there's a recognition that the one that we've got is not great, but there is a lot of good information there about how to contact the Tax Revision Commission with the schedule of, you know, our convenings, our meetings, uh, the minutes of and uh, live stream of past Meetings are available there, so folks can still go watch some of the, the, the meetings that they've missed thus far, and you can find the links to future meetings there as well. There is also work being done to plan a series of public meetings, so there is going to be an effort this spring and into the summer to really engage residents in a variety of different ways, and that may happen through open events where everyone can come and just, you know, give their piece and and say what they want to say about tax policy in the district and how it affects them and what they'd like to see changed. There'll also be some other, I think, meetings and convenings to engage particular stakeholders across the district. We would like to and are, are looking into how we might engage our advisory neighborhood commissioners in having some community discussions around tax and tax policy and to help inform what the Tax Revision Commission is doing. And people can come to the meetings in person as well. I should have said that. We hold the meetings down at one Judiciary Square so folks can participate online or they can come in and be in person with us. And then there's also opportunity to just uh, speak your mind outright. So if you want to write a letter, if you have a set of proposals you want to make, the staff of the Tax Revision Commission are ready to receive those. And there's contact information on the website. And the, the website, I should say, is dctaxrevisioncommission.org. So the, the DC Fiscal Policy Institute, your organization, released a report last week detailing how the denial of statehood to DC has cost local government billions of dollars in lost revenue every year. The report calculates that statehood would also impose some costs, but would leave a surplus of about one and a third billion dollars annually. Talk a little bit about the racist history of DC's limited self-governance and how the projected tax surplus from statehood could be used to correct racial inequalities. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, we really see, and the reason we wanted to write this report is because we really see the denial of statehood as a voting rights issue. It's a civil rights issue, right? It's a representation issue. It's a racial and economic justice issue. It's a self-governance issue. I mean, it really runs the gamut. It is, if you really stop and think about it, pretty incredible that we have been denied the rights we are due for so long. We see, and you can look at the history and read, you know, great books like Chocolate City to read about the history of disenfranchisement and sort of the suppression of Black political and economic power. The district is a prime example of that kind of suppression, you know, where after a brief period where Black men were freed men were able to vote and where they were able to hold elected office. There was a lot of backlash toward that. And all residents, because of that backlash, all residents, Black and white, lost um, all voting rights, right? And we ended up being 
a district really controlled by the federal government. Um, but even with the regaining of some of our self-governance rights uh, with the Home Rule Act in the 70s, uh, we still were denied full self-governance and we still were denied the ability to raise the full set of resources that our economy yields, right, through the the income earned here. So we as a federal district are prohibited from taxing the income of folks who earn their living here in the district but live elsewhere. And it is more than half of all of the wage and salary income uh, earned in the district. So non-residents earn about 57% of all income that's generated in the district. And that all goes untaxed by us. And that is a right that every state in the nation has. They can tax the income earned within their boundaries. And that most states with an income tax exercise at some level or another. And so if we were able, as you said, if we were able to actually tax that income of non-residents who, by the way, typically earn more here in D.C. than their counterparts in their in their home states. So Virginians and Marylanders uh, typically earn more here in the district than they do when they work in Virginia and Maryland. So our economy is offering them great opportunity, great wages, and the tax from those dollars is then flowing to those states instead of to the district to make investments in this economy, in our communities, in the kinds of policy changes that would actually right some of the wrongs of our past that would allow us to invest more deeply in Black communities in particular that have, you know, since the beginning of the district, been been denied any kind of opportunity, economic, political, um, and so forth, except for very short periods of time. So this is a longstanding wrong that should be righted, and that if we were to resolve, if we were to get Congress to declare the district a state, would allow us to raise substantial new revenue to, to invest right here in the district. Lastly, I wanted to ask a bit of a step back question. I get the sense that questions of economic growth and questions of economic distribution are treated as fully independent, right? They're assumed to have no relationship to each other. We can grow the pie and deal with how to distribute the pie secondarily. But as as you've written, there's a lot of research showing how inequality hurts growth. And on the flip side, how mitigating inequality can, can help economies. Talk about why there is a relationship between growth and inequality and how the local tax code could be uh, used to reshape that relationship. Yeah, so there is a lot of good research out there showing that inequality, especially if not met with strong redistributive policies, right, that ensure people have their needs met and have access to opportunity that um, that it can uh, disrupt growth, in fact, and it can also, there's some research out there that shows that it can destabilize democracies too. Um, I think that those things are related as well. So, you know, 
inequality can hamper growth uh, that we're that we're looking for, and it can hamper in part because it hampers mo economic mobility of, of um, you know, I think here in the district, um, we have a lot of untapped potential, right? I, there's a study by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities that shows that if we eliminated inequality by income, we would see five times as many uh, young people growing up to be entrepreneurs, innovators, people creating sort of the economy of the future. So we are sort of stifling our future economic growth when we allow for inequality to go unchecked the way we do. That's Erica Williams, Executive Director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute and a member of the D.C. Tax Revision Commission. You can visit the Commission's website at dctaxrevisioncommission.org. To learn more about the work of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, visit dcfpi.org. You can read the organization's most recent report on the local economy titled The High Cost of Denying Statehood to the District of Columbia. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Amara Evering. In the southern corner of Africa, there is a country called Namibia. In just the past 150 years, Namibia experienced a devastating genocide at the hands of the Germans, was seized as a territory of the South African apartheid regime, and only saw independence in 1990. Many Namibians remember the experience of apartheid, while previous generations remember the mass killings in concentration camps of the Germans. Yet, their stories, their history, and sense of identity has survived all attempts to wipe them out. In this part of the show, we delve into this untold history through a series of interviews with Namibian women. This is only the first segment in a larger series called for Ama, which translates to For Truth in the language Kwekwe Kwabab. In this segment, we hear the voice of an elder in Namibia, now in her late 60s. During the Namibian struggle for independence, she took up arms and directly rebelled against the apartheid regime. Her story about war, love, and revolution tells a modern history of Namibia. I was born in 58. I'm told that I was born in the river. People call it today the Are bush, but it's not Are bush, it's Are Hangap. My mom speaks Nukwe. People would say Damara. So we speak Damara. Damara means walking around. So the other people call us Damara, those people who are stepping around. And the language is really derived from nature. It's like the birds and the animals, the insects sound. It's the bird, the woodpecker. That's the woodpecker. But now the rest of the languages, I can speak. I'm coming from a dad who comes from Angola. I can speak Kimbundu. That's from my dad, Daddy Chiwa. 
I'm born in the old location, but we were moved by by a plan called the Odendal Plan, which is a segregation plan, which is a divide and rule plan. So I was really born in the middle of that chaos and that segregation. There was a forceful removal. They were moved very unwillingly and forcefully without consultation, without repayment. They were given a, a tin of beef, one beef and brown loaf of bread. People have been massacred because they refused to move. And so, so they were moved from a very unifying place. They made songs about the move force removals and they would sing those songs and there were elderly men who would really refuse to the last but then at the end they had to move and then it was occupied by white people at that time. Yes, they were moved. They were moved to where we are today, Katutura, a place where we will never find rest. When they were moved, it was now segregated. H for Herero people, O, V for Ovambo people, D for the Damra people, and N for the Nama people. Then they had G section. They called it Khamengda. So my dad was placed in Khamengda. So now in Khamengda, there is mothers who have love, South African men or Damara women with Kimbundu men. So that Khamengde was a real mixture of families. As we move, we need to carry a pass. When you move in town, you don't just move. You have to have a pass and we were supposed to get out of the town at about five. After five, if you are found in that town, you're going to be beaten up. So up till this day, it's very rare that Elderly people like me would go into town after five. It's just not there, you know. So you finish, the bus takes you back to your ghetto, and that's where you stay. I must have been 17, 18, and we had boycott at the schools, and Agustino was burned down that year. So we boycotted, and my dad says, you're not going to lay around here, lazy, lazy. You need to go and do something. So my dad was working as a, a tea boy in a company. So my dad got me a job at that other company. Two, three days, I work. Week three, I'm like, okay. I'm telling the person that I was talking to, I was just thinking it's just a man there. But meanwhile, I realized it was the boss of the company. So I said, look, if you finish drinking your tea, would you mind please put the cup just in the zinc and I will wash it. And then I said, and then for the ashtray, if you finish smoking with the ashes, I see you have the dustbin here. Just remove the ash and the secret pumps and then I will pick it up and, and then wash it. I was fired immediately. You said what, he says. 
And for me, I thought that was just just a real normal logical thing. How can you finish drinking and you leave your cup there just for me to come and pick it up? And then meanwhile, he was like, who are you, Kapper? You are supposed to do all these shows. That's why we have appointed you. But I thought it was just good manners that you pick up things from the table and put it into the kitchen for those who would wash. But it was such a big insult to the man that he has just immediately fired me without any pain or nothing. So that was something that I looked at. And I said, hmm, so you can't speak to this color any proposal, any suggestion of your mind. And that put me into revolution. I needed a platform to speak about this frustrating thing. So I must have been about 18 then. And I eventually had managed to join the Southwest African People's Organization, which was SWAPO. So for a long time, I worked in the party, and and I think it was at that moment that focusing, having relationships, and so I met this person, and really very connecting beautifully. It was very important for me to have a companion that talks the same language, and we go through the same things, and it was so, so beautifully deep for me. And so we even agreed that we wanted this child. And I was asking him, will you be there? Because maybe my being the women's organizer already, we were organizing ourselves as women and we were talking about our issues already, the whole question of women in the liberation struggle, our roles and responsibilities, that we are not to be taken only as cooking persons, but more worth uh, and giving ourselves to the struggle and the roles that we would play there. So I think he understood very well. He came from a Robben Island, also released. Must have been 85. After we gave birth to our child, separation was really coming. And um, then I gave, uh, I fell pregnant with our second a child um, and so we we separated and I think I was so devastated also the party was also very much at a place where they were doubting some of us the comrades and accusing us of being spies I didn't want to accept the reality that it is true that the party that I gave my whole life and I lost my job, I would be in prison, be beaten up, it doesn't matter, has done this to the very people that we as the youth that time were sending out to go into exile. How did they say now these people are spies? And then worse of it, instead of putting them together to come and hear them, they put them into the dungeons, they judge them, and some of them they killed. So that really has really put me to a standstill, frozen. And so 
after I got very, very depressed, I gave birth to the baby, and so I was really, really out of my space. I didn't want it to be called comrade anymore. So that must have been my new, looking for my new identity. I would introduce myself. The old comrades, comrade, I said, I don't want to be called comrade. My name is not comrade. And so until 1999, I never participated into any political activity. I never go to independent celebrations. I never do those. Also, I had to forgive my children's father. Uh, it really took such a long time. Uh, we could not talk. If we meet to talk, it was like fire. Oh, we were fighting. At that time, he was put as the minister of tourism. He was minister of what? And so I'd go into his office and say, you also betrayed us. This is what we were fighting for. I can't believe you are sitting quiet here in this comfortable office. Our people are still struggling. So it was those deep disappointments and really cause of pain. I, I had to bring out this new me. And so I spent 10 years working day and night cruising this country, educating communities about human rights, seeing individuals. And it was beautiful. I worked. It was satisfying me to go and work with the San community, as you speaking. I traveled all over in the country and I would do that. I think this journey has really opened up many things for me and making me look at issues, not with a conservative eye, but I think with a very critical eye, looking at it consciously, but also thinking about both sides of stories and also with link to culture, and especially as a woman. And that was just the first episode in the series for Ama. For Monday Morning QB, I'm journalist and writer Amara Everink. And that's our show for today. Support Monday Morning QB by visiting WPFWFM.org and becoming a monthly sustainer. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest in power, Eskia. Again, please visit WPFWFM.org and become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington.